the idea that um, public policy should in some way affect or relate to the dynamics of people's lives is something that's really quite popular at the moment. Um, so here are some statements about this. The, the core of our radical new approach will be to move people from being passive recipients of benefits to active job seekers. We're creating a, a system which is active, not passive. We're genuinely providing people with a hand up, not a hand out. Previous governments were satisfied simply to dole out money. Um, people should not feel that income for idleness, however, cause can come from a bottomless pit um, for a limited period. Oh, that's exciting. Um, as, an, as a condition of remaining on benefit, claimants will be required to attend a work or training centre. Um, and if the policy does in some sense want to make things easier, it's only for the worker and not for the idler. And too much of the current system is geared towards maintaining people on benefits rather than helping them flourish in work. We need reforms that tackle the underlying problem of welfare dependency. Um, well, who said all of these things? Um, well, here clearly is the obvious person who might have said the first of this radical new approach that's going to move people from being passive recipients to, um, to being active. Well, that was Peter Hain, the Secretary of State at the time for Social Security in 2007. Um, okay. So the active, not passive system, well, actually, you probably will know that that was Tony Blair um, back in 1999. Um, okay, so maybe it's the income for idleness. Well, no, that was actually in the beverage report um, in 1942. And um, the fourth statement um, about the policy, now I've put in the policy there, actually, the words were modern socialism, and that was Sidney Ball himself in 1896 in his Fabian pamphlet, um, uh, modern socialism, um, which was not aimed at the idler. Uh, so Ian Duncan Smith is left with the, left with the last one. Um, so this policy concern, the, the point is that this isn't, this isn't a new idea, although actually in each generation of politicians, um, I think it's put forward as being a new idea. And nor is the idea that, um, that, that we should be thinking um, about the dynamics of people's lives a new one either. Going back 113 years, um, this is the um, cycle of, these are the cycles of want and plenty, which um, Seabone Roundtree drew from his survey, his, his actual census of working class income, the working class situation of working class people, including their incomes in, in York. And he developed this idea, writing just after Sidney Ball had been writing, um, of this cycle of want and plenty. Somebody's born, uh, maybe as the first child, but the family gets poorer and poorer as there are more children. Um, they then leave home, get a job, and then marry. And you'll see that after marriage, it's all downhill. Um, um, as more children are born, and then children begin to earn, eventually the children uh, marry and leave home, and then actually um, they become too old um, to, to work. Um, now, that analysis um, from, um, from the 1899 York survey and from the 1936 survey was central to... Um, beverages conception of what social insurance was intended to do. And I think you can divide that into, into two parts. Um, so part of what um, the beverage report was about was about people making contributions into a pension scheme which would give, or into, into national insurance, which would give them rights which would later on pay out as pensions in old age. So effectively a transfer from the better bits of working life to retirement. 
Um, and at the same time, although not part of, of national insurance, the, one of the three famous assumptions um, that Beveridge made, which is a rather good way of writing a report, I think, you write on one thing and you say, we will assume um, a system of, of child allowances, which, which interestingly were implemented um, after the war as family allowances um, explicitly to help large families for the second and subsequent children. And I think that emphasis on large families is something that the Department for Work and Pensions and um, in Duncan Smith and his colleagues might want to note at the moment, um, that it is large families um, where the problems um, of, of poverty um, arise. But alongside that, um, um, part of the national insurance system was about um, short-term dynamics, um, not, not things to do f purely from the life cycle. So paying in the stamp, entitling people to unemployment benefit at times when their incomes dipped um, in their working life, um, and indeed contributed towards sickness benefit for, t for times later on in their lives, possibly when, um, when their, their earnings were also interrupted. So we had this dual um, side of it. And indeed, um, <clears throat> you know, these were running alongside the, the assumptions that there would be a national health service which would um, tax-funded that would do um, very much the same thing. Now, those were based on an idea of life cycles from the 1890s and from the 1930s, and, and people's, um, people's incomes look, pattern of people's incomes look different today. These are uh, average incomes by five-year age group per household. So it's the, the age um, here of the, um, of the, the household reference person, um, the, the oldest person or the, or the highest earning person in, in the household by five-year age group from the standard um, redistribution of income series that was analyzed once in this way by the Office for National Statistics. And you'll see instead of having these cycles that are certainly as far as, as a, an average family is concerned or taking the average of all families, you have this, this rather more in terms of market income here, you have this, this hump um, where things rise starting from the, the um, under 30s um, through to little market income um, for older age groups. Now that, I have to say, these kind of diagrams reminds me of something. And the, the thing, the picture it really most reminds me of is this. Um, now... Some of you, um, I have to say probably grown-up people, will think that this is a picture of a hat. Um, the better informed amongst you will know that it's actually a picture of a boa constrictor that swallowed an elephant. Um, as that was the, uh, the, the top one is the picture number one of the author of Le Petit Prince, um, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, and the bottom one is... Um, is what the, um, his, his diagram for people who hadn't realised that this was a picture of a boa constrictor that had swallowed an elephant. And I think it's worth thinking of this shape that a lot of what the welfare state does is about flattening the elephant one way or another. So if you take that uh, market income, the blue, the blue line, and you look at the net effect of, in this case, um, income taxes, direct taxes, indirect taxes um, on the one hand, and social benefits, including uh, what ONS allocate for uh, not just cash benefits, but also for, um, um, for the health service um, and education. Um, you get this very pronounced effect that what's going on here um, in net terms by income group is to try and flatten out um, that life cycle hump. Um, and what does the flattening? Um, you can see here that um, there are two sides to it. There are the, the benefits people people get. Um, I don't think I believe the shading of this. Um, 
Uh, what are we doing? We're out, yeah, this is education of children, clearly, is, is in red rather than one's own education. Um, in red as a hump when people, at this point people have, um, ha have children. And then health, healthcare, including for their children, um, in green, building up particularly large numbers, of course, for people um, over 75 and, and into their 80s. Um, and then state pensions, um, obviously after state pension age, and that's including, um, <clears throat> I've included in their pension credit. But those are financed by taxes that are paid by and large across the, in, in, in the UK system, if you add them all together, um, pretty well in proportion to people's um, incomes, and they're, they're humped in the same way. And it's that, um, it's that, that combination um, of, um, of, of, of taxes that are higher in working life and benefits that tend to um, affect people, um, older, older households, um, that produce this flattening um, of the elephant. Now, um, what I want to try and do this evening is to think a little bit about not just um, that sort of immediate effect on people of different ages, but the way in which different parts of the welfare state um, affect people, if you like, at different wavelengths of what's happening to the dynamics of their lives. And I'm going to look um, uh, in, in terms of, of what generally goes on, um, and then I'm going to look at some examples of current reforms and how they seem to be operating um, in that kind of perspective. So um, in terms of um, the, what's going on instantaneously, um, this is what um, that system we just saw, if you um, translate that back into net effects, but you look at um, across the in income distribution, this is a slightly different income measure. These are um, uh, equivalised incomes rather than household incomes, um, uh, but, but, but sort of weighted by individual from, um, from the um, Households Below Average Income data set from the Family Resources Survey. This is um, data taken from the National Equality Panel report. Um, so at the bottom, these are the net incomes per individual um, for people at the 10th percentile of the income distribution, then the median, and then the, um, and then the, the 90th percentile um, at the top. And to, to arrive at that position in terms of net incomes... Um, the, the system uh, cross-sectionally is, of course, supporting people who would otherwise be far lower than that if they're at the 10th percentile, um, but has brought down through the net taxes they pay people who are in the green, um, who would otherwise had a, would have had a very peaked hat, hat indeed if it wasn't for the um, effect of taxes. So that's, that's, I think, when people, when you think about, when people think often about what the welfare state does, it's about this Robin Hood kind of squashing um, of the income distribution at whatever age you're talking about. But as with, um, as with um, Beveridge's conception of what um, social insurance and national insurance should be doing, a lot of what, um, what we think of, particularly when people now use the term welfare, um, rather than thinking of the welfare state more broadly, um, are things that are to do with coping with short-term fluctuations. And that's the job of things like tax credits, um, to some extent, obviously, job seekers' allowance, housing benefit, and then in the future, um, the amalgamation of all of these into universal credit under the, under the reforms that um, the current government um, is putting through. So that's um, the, the, the next widest wavelength. But then we have a whole series of things that are to do with really medium-term differences. And you can think of student finance, I'm going to come back to this, as being about trying to organise a transfer from people's later working lives, when they're, by assumption, better off, um, to the point when they need 
um, when they need the money to support them and to pay for their tuition um, when, they're, when they're usually younger. Um, but going the other way and thinking of rather longer um, wavelength differences in people's lives, what pension systems do is to, in one way or another, collect money for as, as much of people's um, working lives or, or accumulate rights across as much of people's um, working lives as possible in order to fund um, their, their retirement. And then maybe the longest wave, wavelength possible is actually beyond our own lives and in terms of what we're coping with in terms of intergenerational transfers. And clearly this is something that's been important to a, to a large number of, um, of, of different agendas. Um, the differences between different income groups in terms of what these kind of transfers can look like. So if you now look at parental income um, on one scale and then the overlapping generation of their children um, on, the, on the lower one, um, then at some, in some sense um, parents are supporting their children through what happens preschool, what they pay for by way of nurseries or just the environment they grow up in, but also schooling and the choices they make about where they buy, buy houses um, or send their children to private schools. And then on through working lives, through transfers that support um, people when they're students so that they don't have to um, borrow so much, um, and house purchase deposits, which are an increasingly um, important form of transfer from parents to children. Um, and then on eventually to gifts um, in later life um, or eventually um, inheritance. But of course, with some, with some flows going the other way from, um, from children... Um, at, at the, um, in their middle or late middle age um, through informal care or through explicit um, transfers um, to their parents. So the environment in which um, social policy and welfare policy operates um, is one where you've got, the, you can think of them operating at these different wavelength scales, these different frequencies um, of, of changes in people's lives. So using that sort of framework, um, I just want to say a little bit, um, depending on how much time, I've got about um, five different um, sets of reforms. Um, I, don't th I haven't got time to talk about intergenerational links, but um, I think the social mobility agenda is rather interesting, thinking about life in this, in this kind of way. So I want to start with thinking about the short term and about the issues that are raised by the dynamics of people's lives. Now, um, this is, the, what I'm going to show you, the next few slides I'm going to show you, are taken from some work that um, my colleagues Abigail McKnight and Rachel Smithers and I did back in 2003-2004, um, when we persuaded the um, HMRC and the Treasury to give us some money in the days when there was something called an evidence-based policy fund, which is rather... Um, rather halcyon era for those of us interested in evidence-based policy, um, to try a very intensive exercise of following a group of households through a complete year where we, they were phoned up um, by the National Centre for Social Research every fortnight, and they filled in questionnaires as a kind of aid memoir, to tell us what their income looked like on a detailed week-to-week -week basis. And most surveys ask people what their current income is or what their income's been over the last year or what their normal income is. We wanted to know what these look like from week to week in terms of what happened. And I mean, those of us carrying, involved in the exercise um, have really rather boring lives. 
Um, and certainly the civil servants who commissioned us in these terms, I think, have very boring lives where um, you, you get an income every week or month and it stays the same. You might occasionally get a bonus or something and then you get a pay rise and you go on to a step. And, and this is an example on a weekly basis of somebody who has really a pretty pretty, had a pretty uneventful year. Um, interesting thing that happened to them at the beginning, um, in the first week they were still being paid their old working family tax credit. This was the year when the new tax credits, the working tax credit and the child tax credit, came in. Um, and in week two, they didn't get any money at all. Um, but then um, in week three, um, they got a larger payment through, through maybe not through a combination of working tax credit and, um, and the child tax credit. It was a bit of a catch-up period. And then they settled down to a regular pattern um, with some little blips of other income um, at the end. Now, one of the things that this kind of exercise, well, this kind of report immediately showed up was that people receive their incomes on different timescales. This particular person um, was being paid weekly. They were getting child benefit weekly. Um, and they were getting their other, other tax credits. They, they'd opted to get them on a weekly basis. But within the survey, we had people who were paid monthly. We were people who were receiving their tax credits every four weeks. Um, we had people who had partners who were weekly paid while they were monthly paid. And, and it becomes quite difficult, particularly to amalgamate weekly payments with monthly, monthly payments. Because, um, so what we did was to transform um, the amounts that people were getting into effective payments for 13 four-week periods. And we then, we had, because this is a rather intensive exercise, we ended up, I think we analysed 94 cases that we have complete data for. Um, out of the people, which is quite a large proportion of the ones we started with, um, across the whole year. And there were cases that were indeed like this, that were, um, that were highly stable, um, really rather little variation from month to month. But there were other cases that, across the year, were really very erratic indeed and very unstable, with very big changes in household circumstances um, across the um, across the year as a whole. I can't remember the exact details. I mean, why, why this one um, really has this extreme case, um, case H1. Um, but there are things going on here, like um, partners who, one, one partner works only in, in, in school terms, and you get, and therefore very little income comes in in August, for instance. You have other people who are getting bonuses at Christmas, um, and so on. Now, um, one of the assumptions, I think, of the tax credit system when it came in was that people's situations were pretty stable. Um, but looking across our cases, now our cases were selected to be people who were initially in work, in relatively low-paid work, and with children, because they were entitled to the old working family tax credit. Um, so this is a particular group of people in relative families with children in relatively, or lone parents, in families with, um, with relatively low incomes, but actually in work. And of that group, um, only about 15 of, of, of the cases, um, you could say, were, were that kind of boring case I put forward at the beginning. Another 13, you know, as long as you were allowed some tolerance of 25% variance from um, period to period, this four-week period. Um, but then a lot of the others were either in the situation where over um, um, 10 of the periods, they were within 15% um, of, um, of, of an average figure, but three of the periods, they were way off that. Um, or they were following a pattern of, of falling or, or rising consistently across the year. Or they were the kind of case that I just put forward, where they were really very erratic from, 
um, from month to month. Now, that sort of data, which of course we were collecting as the new tax credit came, system came in in 2003, um, <clears throat> um, I think explains part of the reason why the tax credit system ended up with such trouble, in such trouble in some ways. That the, the predecessors of the current, what are the current tax, tax credits, the working tax credit, the family, cre family credit, uh, child tax credit, um, so, so working family tax credit and family credit before that, and indeed family income supplement before that, were based on payments that were fixed for um, a six-month period, um, based on assessment of, of, of income over the previous five weeks. And then that, that assessment was made, and then you got the same amount of money week after week um, or month after month for the, um, for the following six months. And then it, it started again. But the ideology of, of Gordon Brown's new tax credits were that they weren't a handout they were part of the tax system. They were a negative income tax in some form. And therefore, like income tax, they should be based on an annual assessment. And in some way, they should work in the way that pay-as-you-earn income tax works, that during the year, month by month or week by week, the right amount, right amount is deducted, so that by the end of the year, very few people in the UK system um, have to pay additional tax or, or get some kind of tax, tax payment back. Because the cumulative system means that you've done the right amount by the end of the year, based on your total income for the year. So the idea, the change, was that um, somehow or other, um, in-year adjustments or end-year adjustments would make sure that the right amount had been paid out so, that, so it wouldn't matter what pattern your income followed over the year. Now, the way it was set up was really geared to people who had pretty stable circumstances and whose incomes didn't vary very much across the year. But looking at the kind of people who were the prime targets of the new tax credits, the kind of people we were interviewing, they, they had overtime, they had bonuses, they changed their jobs, they switched from weekly paid to monthly paid, they had partners who were doing the same kind of thing at the same time, there were people who received no income outside school terms, but also whose childcare, other people whose childcare costs, which are part of the tax credit system, varied widely between term time and school holidays. Um, and you could see in the, the data we had from HMRC, which we could match with, with, with this, um, with, with the reports we'd got, the way in which um, HMRC, when it, when it learned of these things, kind of had to make really very rapid adjustments, very large adjustments, part of the way through the year to people's tax credits to try and get the right amount done by the end of the year. And, and in this first year, about half of the people we were talking to had reassessments of their tax credits within the year. The other half, it was all done after the end of the year, but at that point it turned out they'd been paid too little um, or too much. And that meant that one of the things that immediately beset, because of these short-term dynamics, one of the problems that immediately beset the new tax credit system was that a lot of here with this generous new system, people got the money during the year, but suddenly at the end of the year, they were being either asked for the money back, um, or they were being told, well, next year's tax credit will be much lower because we paid you too much last year. And that, as indeed the government was warned by, I remember Jane Miller from Bath University, um, had happened in Australia, a generous system um, fell into some disrepute because of people then being asked, people, the thing that stuck in people's mind was uh, being asked for the money back um, after the end of the year. And, and even trying to get it right within the year when people did report their changes in circumstances meant could mean really quite big swings um, in, in what was happening. Uh, now, 
the previous government did try to cope with that to some extent by saying, well, if your income changes by, if your income goes up by up £3,000 and eventually a much larger number, we won't change your, uh, change your assessment. It, that didn't solve all the problems because you still had these issues about people who had childcare costs that varied a lot um, across the year. So they tried to give some um, asymmetry in the treatment. The people whose circumstances improved wouldn't get their tax credits taken off them, but the system would come and protect them if their circumstances deteriorated. But that's expensive. And I think it's that background. You can see part of the idea of the new universal credit system, part of it is about um, amalgamation um, of, of several five different systems of income testing. Um, but part of what, what it's about is to try and get over the lags in adjustment that happen. I remember looking at somebody, somebody who tried to ask me if I could explain why their housing benefit had changed six times in, um, in, in a, a two-month period. Um, and the reason why their housing benefit had changed um, six times in a five-week period was, was the unexpected feature of the 1st of April had happened that year. And what happened on the 1st of April was that um, their rent changed, their council tax changed, their pay changed, and all the rules of the system all changed on the 1st or the 3rd of April. But the different systems changed it successively, and housing benefit each time adjusted to what had happened to their, tax, to their pay, their tax credit, their rent, but it did it one by one, and then eventually it, it caught up. But by the, by the time, you know, bafflingly, um, for, the, for the particular person I was talking to, you know, nothing, only one thing had happened in their, in their lives, but their housing benefit changed from week to week. Now, the idea of universal credit is to stop that kind of thing, that this will all be in one payment, um, and it won't overpay, and there won't need to be clawbacks, because it's all going to be done in real time, month by month. Um, so, so what happens is that you are, um, you are working for an employer, um, the University of Oxford, for instance, and um, you will have reported to the Department of Work and Pensions what your circumstances are, what your rent is, because housing benefits can be part of this, um, how many children you've got, um, things about your disability status, all sorts of things like that. They will be stored centrally by HMRC. Um, the University of Oxford will beam on the yesterday, let's say, or the day before, will beam what your pay for the month is to, or has been, to the HMRC computer. Um, simultaneously, your partner will be doing, or your partner's employer will be doing the same thing. These will arrive at the HMRC computer, which will be passed on to DWP, which will then combine the information on your circumstances with your income on, uh, what's, with what's happened to your income during the month, and will then beam that information back to one of your employers today, or day before, whenever it is, I suppose this is what happens a week earlier, um, so that in your pay packet today, the 31st of October, you will receive the right amount based on your household income for the month that's just gone past. And it'll be the right amount. There won't be any need for any, um, any uh, overpayments or later adjustments. It'll just be the, the right amount. And, and all of these overlapping means tests that have caused the sort of sequence I just described um, um, for, for the particular claimant will, will be eliminated because it's all happening in one smooth operation. Now, it seems to me that there are some issues in this. Um, I mean, a first issue is that not all employers have the payroll systems that the University of Oxford or the London School of Economics have. Uh, most employees do have computerised payroll systems. 
But the people you're most worried about are probably most likely to be working for employers, corner shops, um, and, and whatever it is, that do not have those kind of systems. Not everybody is paid monthly. Um, and, and as you saw from the 2003 data, um, payment patterns vary across the year. People move from monthly pay, weekly pay to monthly paid and back again. And they may differ between partners. And you then have, in spades, that problem of the, the four and five weeks. You know, some, sometimes you have a four-week month and sometimes you have a five-week month. People have more than one employer simultaneously. Um, people doing, um, doing jobs, um, cleaning jobs um, or care jobs may well have more than one employer simultaneously. Um, um, I'm, I'm sure Fran can tell you what the latest state of play is on this later, but the presumption is that the payment will go to one partner, and that obviously raises a, a lot of issues. Um, <clears throat> and it's not quite clear how the complication of this is going to work out. Um, now, the aim of this, and this is explicitly about um, moving people who've been receiving benefits into, quotes, the real world of monthly budgeting, is that this will be paid normally as a single monthly payment. Now, for some people, given that this is now going to include their rent, which, rather than that being paid to the landlord, um, as, a, as a common case, under Rent Direct, this will be really quite a large amount of money that will come in um, at the beginning of the month in terms of people's circumstances, out of which they've then got to pay for everything. But many recipients, certainly in our survey, um, don't budget monthly. We, we ask people in our group, and it's obviously admittedly a rather small sample, what period they planned ahead for basic expenses. And you'll see that half of them um, budgeted on fortnightly or less. Um, the, the, other, the other half were, um, were budgeting on, on about a month um, or later. Now, this is, this is old data, but I did see um, there was an interesting report about universal credit from the Social Market Foundation a couple of weeks ago, and they'd also asked a small sample of, of people, um, possibly slightly poorer than um, the group we were talking to, um, what, what period they budgeted on, and 20 of the 30 people they were talking to in detail um, budgeted fortnightly um, or a shorter period. Um, now, you know, it seems to me that the, um, whoops, the, um, the obvious issue there is that if people, particularly if they're getting payment in arrears, and they've been budgeting weekly or fortnightly, and are now shifting to a system where they're expected to budget monthly, there is a huge danger that by before the end of the month the money will run out and um, that they will end up in the hands of the payday loan companies, um, particularly given that Social Fund um, has now been decentralised to local authorities who are going to be running different rules. And there's another risk in this, not just whether how well people are going to be able to budget um, over this, this new longer period, um, but also, we're putting all our eggs in one basket. There are clearly downsides of having five different means-tested benefit systems of one kind or another. But at least, probably, only one of them goes wrong at the same time. With this, with universal credit, you'll either get the payment this month or you won't. And, and if you don't get it because something's gone wrong in that, um, the stakes are going to be very high indeed. Okay, let me move on to um, more medium-term um, reforms. Um, and, and topically this month and topically for, for this institution, um, with what's happened to university fees, um, what, what we're trying to achieve, or what the system is trying to achieve, is to fill in what would otherwise be a dip um, in terms of people's needs um, and their living costs when they're at university, um, paying fees that £9,000 cover 
the full cost of at least um, humanities and social sciences teaching. Um, but that's financed by loans that are then recovered from 30 years of people's working life. But on a, um, an income contingent basis that you only pay, you will only pay in the future, if you earn more than £21,000 a year um, and you pay 9% um, of the excess over that. So the basis of the new system, which has been developing over the last um, 20 years, is this idea that you um, don't have to pay anything up front, but you will have to pay later on. So it's a shift from, from your, your working life back to um, what happens when you're, when you're young. Now, the problem with that system is that colleagues such as Nick Barr at LSE um, and indeed David Willits can argue till they're blue in the face that this is not a problem because you only pay if you have a higher income, future, a higher income later on. Um, and only in, in terms of your later future income. Not everybody believes that. And with the agenda around social mobility and participation from um, social groups that haven't traditionally um, participated, um, um, the, the, the fear is that, that this system by itself will not allow us to um, start um, or can continue the, the rather slow progress in, in, in reducing the social class gap in um, in university tertiary education attendance. So superimposed on top of that system, which is about moving money around within people's own life, life cycles, there is a separate system which universities have been asked to invent or, or, or through something called the National Scholarship Programme, which is intended to help the, the students whose parents have low incomes, um, who have low incomes specifically two years before they arrive at university or in the period two years before. So um, you get extra help through bursaries and maintenance if you had, have effectively low parental income based on what happened two years before. Now, I think there are a couple of people in the audience who've seen this before, but I can't resist being here um, making an aside about Oxford's own system. Um, this is, a colleague and I looked at um, the systems that were on offer in January when people were doing their UCAS applications um, to um, the 50 largest um, universities plus two um, other Russell Group universities in the, in the coming year. And this is the most generous system, um, unless you meet some other conditions, in which case Cambridge would be a bit more generous um, above parental income of 16,000. So, so this income test is based on gross earnings, on, on gro well, it's, it's called residual income, which mainly consists of your parents' gross incomes two years ago in the tax year that finished um, in, in March um, 2012. Um, and there's a little bit of adjustment if, if they have another child, but it's gross income. And the combination of um, the, the fee waiver in your first year and the bursary you get in your first year, if you have a, an income below 16,000, your parents had an income below 17,000 um, two years ago, and you don't have any other income of, of your own, um, you get, a, um, effectively, it's worth 13,050 pounds. Um, and you'll see that falls um, in a series of sort of steps and, and slides. Um, and it's a really, you know, we had a big fuss last year about the idea that the withdrawal of child benefit would create a, a cliff edge worth £2,000 or so for, um, for a family with two, two children, whatever it is, um, maybe less than that. Um, the, the cliff edge, as you move from um, parental income of 16000 it actually just is there's a £1 different. It's far bigger than that um, in the Oxford system. And it's, indeed, that's quite, um, that's quite common. 
um, in most of the systems, apart from the University of Southampton that um, has a smooth system. So this is the combination of government support for maintenance grants, which run out at, at 43,000. Now, what that does is to create a series of very high marginal tax rates. Now, this diagram, what one has to remember is that we already, this is 100, by the way, this is a 100% marginal tax rate. This is a confiscatory marginal tax rate. This system comes on top of what the rest of the tax and benefit system does, income tax, tax credit withdrawal, and so on, which already creates a 70% marginal tax rate across most of the zone up to median earnings. And then superimposed on top of that, if you look back to how somebody, somebody's parents would have been treated two years ago, and then you look at this as a family means test, um, it superimposes on top of that these reductions or cliff edges. And now, I've, you know, I haven't over-exaggerated. This isn't per pound. You know, I'm not showing a marginal rate there for a single pound difference in income. These are £1,000 difference in, in, in parental earnings. Um, so there's a, there's a point where your parents move from, uh, from 17,000 to 17,001 or, 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 or 16,001 to 17,001 where effectively you're facing, uh, the fa as a family, um, you're facing a 500% marginal tax rate um, over that zone. Um, now, in fact, if you add the whole system together, the Oxford system is worth, for the, for the poorest students, £13,050. If you, and, and, and that, that would go to somebody whose parents were earning less than £17,000 two years ago, um, but it wouldn't go to somebody whose parents were earning £43,000 two years ago. If, they, if, 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 you're, if you, maybe as a first-year student, um, have a sibling who's still at home, so there were two of you two years ago, um, and you look at the effect of the tax system on the net income, and, and the tax credit system on the net income of those two families earning £17,000 <coughs> The difference in net income for the family would have been £13,246. So a net income difference for the family of £13,246 creates a difference in Oxford's treatment of that family of £13,050 over that income range, which encompasses basically the whole of the earnings distribution, or the bulk of the earnings distribution. So a 99% tax rate has been created retrospectively as a result of the unplanned, I imagine, um, combination of the Oxford system and, and the government system. I have to say, th this diagram also reminds me of something, um, 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 which is um, also close to home. Uh, now, how am I doing? Um, have I got time? No, I don't think I've got time for this. Um, so I'll move on. So let me move on to the longer-term reforms. And um, as, as Martin mentioned, I, um, these are reforms which are quite dear to my heart, um, as some of them follow from um, the recommendations of the Pensions Commission. Um, and this is, in some ways, the biggest reform that's going on at the moment. Um, started under the last government, and then part of it being enacted from this month onwards, the 1st of October, um, the first the, the employees of the largest companies were automatically enrolled into their, their employer's pension scheme. And, and they can opt out of it, but the previous system was they had to opt in. The idea is that now people, um, people are automatically put in the pension scheme um, unless, they, um, unless they opt out. And this will gradually be spread to um, smaller employees until um, eventually, um, under the current design, everybody is covered, that you're, you're automatically, as well as building up rights to the state pension, you're automatically in some form of employer system or you're... Your, your employer opts for you to be in this new um, national system called the National Employment Savings Trust. Um, and what's going on here is a system which is designed to, um, when people are contributing 
to encourage people to contribute more through automatic enrolment, keeping in place the system of tax relief, making it mandatory that employers at least contribute a small amount um, to, to pension funds rather than necessarily nothing. And at the other end, the state pension system is in different ways being made more generous than it would otherwise have been um, by moving from a system where the UK system was price-linked, which obviously meant pensions were a great deal less generous in relation to earnings than they had been um, 30 years ago, um, to one where um, there is now, in fact, as implemented by the current government, the triple lock that each year state pensions will increase either by earnings growth or by RPI inflation or by 2.5%, whichever of those numbers is the highest. Um, and the, the second pension, you don't want to know the details of this unless you're a real enthusiast, is, is moving on to a flat rate system so that the idea of these reforms are to try and stem the spread of means testing in old age so that the message of it pays to save is an easier one to give to people, um, people in their working lives. Um, but of course that costs money and this system, the whole system is going to be more expensive as, as longevity increased. So alongside these reforms um, are the, the increases in state pension age which um, start not just the, the move to equalisation of women's state pension age but the, the state pension age increases that are, um, that are coming in for now for everybody from 2018 um, onwards um, but, but probably keeping the balance perhaps possibly explicitly in recent government proposals the balance between working life and, and um, post state pension age life um, constant um, over time. Um, so that's one set of reforms that are going on that affects um, that end of that neck of the woods. Um, the other being, um, being, um, being in this neck of the woods um, that's also going on at the moment but we don't know what's going to happen are uh, what's happening to social care and um, um, where at the moment people with assets, people with wealth when they need um, residential care or, or, or care at home um, in later life um, usually um, if they have assets they're expected to pay for it themselves creating what Andrew Dulnot described um, as the biggest uncovered risk um, that people face and the idea of the Dillnock Commission reforms is to put a cap on that um, which he put at between 35 and 50,000 pounds. I saw some press reports at the weekend saying that well this might go through but the Treasury wants the limit to be 70,000 um, pounds. But it has a cost however you do it. I mean the cost, the immediate short-term cost in the Dillnock report is 1.7 billion pounds which in the great scheme of things as Andrew Dillnock points out isn't a huge amount of money um, but obviously in the current circumstances there aren't a lot of 1.7 billion pounds is lying around and the question then is where, where, where do you get this money from and you could get it from tax in working life you could hope that you get it from private insurance well the idea of the cap is that maybe people if, once you know that there's, a, there's not an open-ended risk people would uh, there would be a private insurance market develop um, I'm a little skeptical of that of how big it would be um, or of course it's other people in their working, um, or maybe towards the end of their working lives, providing informal care. Or the money could come either at the end of life through a perfectly good system we have called inheritance tax, um, or some particular tax which got labelled in the run-up to the election a death tax, which was therefore obviously a bad idea. Um, although, given that taxes are supposed to be a deterrent to things, having a, 
death tax, incentivizing people not to die, seems to me a rather good idea. Um, but also, we've got the debate at the moment of, you know, should pensioners be contributing, you know, national insurance contributions stop um, um, when you reach pension age? Should actually there be some kind of charge equivalent to national insurance contributions? Should we be means testing winter fuel payments? All of that. And that's, you know, where the debate is at the moment is really about, well, okay, a lot of people think that do lots of recommendations are right, but somehow or other they've got to be paid. I mean, if they're just taken out of the general budget, then effectively they're coming from tax or other, or other spending. Um, and that seems to me to be, um, if you like, it's, it's about what wavelength we, we think about carrying out these reforms um, under. Now, um, what I want, then want to talk about is, well, what does all of this add up to? I mean, if you think of what the beverage model was trying to achieve, and you think about the reforms that are going on at the moment, how do these reforms relate to all of this? Uh, thinking of really three different phases in people's lives. Well, there's an extent to which school budgets have been protected, relatively speaking, um, compared with other parts of the welfare state. Um, on the other hand, child benefit has been frozen, um, education maintenance allowances have been, have been abolished, youth provision is being cut back across um, a wide range of, 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 of local authorities. Um, when you look at what's happening to working age, I couldn't think of anything nice that was happening to people of working age, but maybe there's something. But um, huge savings from linking um, working age benefits to the CPI rather than the RPI. Um, limits on total benefits, £25,000, limits on housing benefit payments, um, now limits potentially coming in if you make the mistake of having an extra child while you're on, on benefits, um, big reforms that save money with more stringent tests for disability benefits, limits on housing tax benefit, um, a random cut to council tax benefit, which seems to me by far the most chaotic thing that's going on at the moment, where um, local authorities uh, are outside the universal credit system but have to save 10% of, of the budget, of the total budget, but from working age recipients. So the impact of this varies from local authority. You know, in Christchurch, this is tough on working age recipients because so many pensioners will be protected. Parts of London, it may be less tough. Um, tax credits have been made less generous. Um, and obviously, there are these student loan repayments, um, which now extend over 30 years um, rather than, um, and, and are bigger, on bigger amounts, the £9,000 and all of that. Um, rather than the 25 years they applied over before on um, helping to pay for fees of, that had been £3,500. Um, but at the same time, um, when you look at what's happening to the older population, um, some of this seems to me for good reasons. The National Health Service is, relatively speaking, protected. State pensions are actually being made more generous in some ways. Um, and the current government, the Prime Minister, is pledged to carry on paying things like winter fuel payments to anybody in the audience who's over 60, I think, get a winter fuel payment. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Um, that's protected. Um, but at the same time, um, clearly local authority care for the elderly as provision for, for childcare, short start and all of that, and youth provision is under huge pressure. Um, there was a huge fuss um, when the government made clear that it was... Um, uh, not just quietly phasing out with anybody noticing the age allowance, but, but actually abolishing it overnight. Um, that was the granny tax in, in the budget. Um, and, and pension ages are moving up. So it's not all good news at the top. But I think if you put the balance of that together, 
what you see in terms of the earlier picture I showed you is something that looks um, a bit like this, that um, for, for people with low incomes who are young or indeed of working age but on low incomes, um, provision is being reduced, more contributions are being expected from the working population as a whole, but that by and large lower income pensioners, um, people, older people, are being to some extent protected. And it seems to me that move towards a welfare state that does much less for the working age population, is much less generous, much more stigmatised for the working age population um, than it has been, um, is a further move across the Atlantic towards uh, a more US-style welfare state, which the US welfare state is really quite big through things like um, Medicare and the US Social Security pension system, more generous than the UK state pension system. Um, so you get something that, if you like, um, does less for people um, in the, um, of, of working age and more um, later on. So if you like, we're moving towards a flatter elephant in the middle of that blower constrictor, but, but probably with a more bulging stomach for people with low incomes, with less pr protection for people um, at, at the bottom of this. Now, uh, just to finish, um, what is happening in the USA, um, to be a bit topical, um, I did have this on a sound clip, but I, I wasn't sure how this was going to work. Anyway, um, as, as you probably remember, um, Mr. Romney famously said back in March that there are 47% who will vote for the president no matter what, 47% who are with him, who are dependent on government, who believe they're victims, who believe they're entitled to health care, to food, you name it, and that's an entitlement and the government should give it to them. Now, um, those of you who don't know Nate Silver's 538 blog, just Google 538, and um, this morning, um, Mr. Obama was on uh, 50.4, so he's picked up an, an extra 3.4, um, and Nate Silver actually, on basically the current polls, which obviously all bets are off after the, after the hurricane, um, gives him a 75% chance of winning the Electoral College, but I mean, that's going to change from day to day. But, so there's not just the 47%, there are another 3.4% possibly in, in Mr. Romney's view, suckers who are, who are with him at the moment. Now, kind of actually, I mean, Mitt Romney did his calculations on the basis of only 47% of US households pay income tax. Now, we can, with the kind of data I was showing you before, we can look more broadly and look by income group at... Um, what the net balance is between social benefits, generally broadly defined, and the taxes they pay. So you've got the taxes by income group in red going downwards, the, the benefits by income group in blue going across, and the black line gives the net gain. And in fact, actually, in the UK case, that looks more like 57% who believe they've, they're get, getting something out of the, out of the system um, rather than... Um, rather than um, um, rather, and the other 43% the other paying into it. Um, on balance. Now, okay, but that is based, as was Mr. Romney's evidence, on a snapshot. It's based on what is happening today. But people's lives are really more complicated than I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to, how easily I'm going to be showing. This is, this is data taken from the British Household Panel Survey um, in Stephen Jenkins' recent book published by Oxford University Press, Changing Fortunes. And what he does as a way of displaying this is to say, well, okay, let's line up the people in the base year, which is 1991, um, into, into 20ths. So the people at the top in blue are the poorest, the people at the bottom, um, um, red, are, are the richest, and in between. And then if you measure on the left-hand scale where people started 
and then look where they end up, there are really two kinds of possibility. One is that it really doesn't matter where you started. So when you look in the final year, um, whatever the final year is, you will have uh, a 20th of the population will be in the top 20th and the 20th, wherever they started, uh, 20th will be, um, sorry, this is this one, um, in the final year, um, a 20th will be, um, will be in, the, in the richest group. On the other hand, people might hold exactly the same position. You have perfect immobility, but they all stay in the same place, and you get a pet picture where, where looking across in the final year, everybody who started off poor, everybody who started off blue, it ends up blue in the final year. Um, now, what you actually see in the data, if you look just one year, 1991 to 1992, you see quite a lot of movement. 35% of the people who were poor against the official poverty line in the first year um, end, end up poor. So they're still blue. So these people who started off poor at the top, they're still blue at the end. But the third of them aren't. And some rich people who started off rich have actually um, apparently ended up at the bottom. That's just a one-year transition. So there's quite a lot of movement going on, but clearly... It's asymmetric, you know, where you start matters. Um, and indeed, if you push this on and you look, you carry this through for 16 years, so you look at where they'd ended up by 2006, there's really quite a lot of movement. The people who started off in the poorest 20th, um, some of them are back again or still in the poorest 20th, but you know, a small number of them have actually got to the top. And similarly, people at the top, a small number have ended up right at the bottom. Um, so there's quite a lot of movement. Now, that means that what, when you're trying to understand what's going on in this kind of period, um, this kind, this, from this kind of data, there are two features of this that you have to bear in mind at one time. First of all, we don't have a static underclass. It's not that everybody who started off poor stays remorselessly poor, which is what the kind of 47% analysis um, would suggest. But nor is it true, and this is what makes life very difficult, that we end up randomly um, all over the place. So there are strong links, but they're not deterministic links. So um, unlike Mr. Romney's assumption, we don't live in a static world. And you know, people's circumstances, as I was showing, change really quite considerably within the year, let alone between years. And looking over the, the longer period, that kind of variation has quite important effects. So part of the rhetoric that's used by both left and right at the moment and has been used in previous recessions is the idea of the, the, the household where, th I think I heard possibly in Duncan Smith talk about households where three generations have never worked. Now, there are other people in the audience who know much more about this, but um, Paul Gregg and Lindsay Millen recently looked at, at different sources of data to look just within two generations at you know, how many two-generation households, which is only... 20% um, of, of all households, have got two generations currently out of work for over a year. That's only 140,000 of those. And of those, about 3%, 15,000, have two generations who have never worked. That's two generations. And of those, a third, um, the, the younger generation, only left full-time education within the last year. Now, if that's the number, if we're down to 10,000 across the entire country of two generations who have never worked in some meaningful sense. And then obviously, the three generations who have never worked, there may be some of them, and I'm sure we've seen them on television. Um, but the idea that this is a general representation of the world that we're dealing with and the world that the social policy deals with seems to me to be um, completely incorrect. So, um, just to conclude on this, um, to, to include all of this, um, Hilary Mantel has made Tudor bureaucrats um, rather fashionable. 
And it seems to me that um, Archbishop Cramner um, got it right in the prayer book um, when using the language of for richer, for poorer, and in sickness and in health. This is what a lot of the kinds of things I've been talking about uh, are to do with. They're about fluctuations in people's lives. We don't live in a static world, and social policies have never been concerned with people's situation at a single moment. Um, a, a lot of what the welfare state does is about um, um, reducing short-term inequalities, but actually most of what it, it does is about um, a reaction to the dynamics of people's lives. And those, those lives are very complex. And policy mistakes, as I think with tax credits, and as I fear with universal credit, can follow from underestimating them. Um, and we, we know the problems with the end-year adjustments of tax credits, but I think they may also be problems for universal credit. It's also in a mistake to base policy on the idea that there's a sta stagnant fixed underclass um, and the idea of th so there being substantial numbers of three generations who've never worked is a myth. But there are strong continuities over time, and that makes it equally a mistake to think it all averages out in the end, because it doesn't. Um, what welfare states um, since Beveridge and before have done is to try and cope with that duality to redistribute incomes and to smooth out um, short-term risk and cope with longer wavelength life cycle variations. And that's why the whole system matters to many more people um, than, the, um, than the net beneficiaries at any particular moment. So that's why Mitt Romney, in effect, in effect was dare wrong. Um, as our own Prime Minister would have put it, we were the future once. Um, most of us were in the 47% when we were children or young adults. Many of us will be in the 47% um, at times when our income dips or in ill health. Most of us will be in the 47% in retirement. And at the same time, many of us have grandchildren or grandchildren who are in the 47%. Um, and our parents have been um, or were in the 47%. Now, um, the, the other fact I know about Sidney Ball is that when he died, um, he left, he left um, an estate of £8,000. Um, if you revalue that at, um, along with GDP per capita growth, um, that would mean he was, leaving, he was leaving an estate worth £1.76 million, which would actually put him in the top 1%. So this is not true of everybody. There are exceptions to the idea, but I think by and large um, we are um, nearly all of us in the 47%. Thank you very much.